Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. We're going to talk with Jason Williams with Oregon Taxpayers United. Also, uh, uh, publishes Oregon Watchdog and the Oregon Religion Report. We're going to talk about the midterm elections right here at home. We're also going to hear from Tim Dunn. He's the author of Yellow Balloons, Power for Living Life Above the Circumstances. We'll cover some of the day's news as well. Beginning with some of the top news stories, Democrats are not thrilled that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has released DNA tests to prove her Native American ancestry or not and fear the controversy throws the party off the message before the midterm election. So the timing was an issue for the Democrats as the days are ticking by until the uh, midterm elections actually take place. All the speculation ends. Votes are actually cast and counted, and there's an outcome. Well, the family of a missing Saudi activist has called for an international independent commission to investigate his presumed death as the Saudi government reportedly mulls issuing a statement saying Jamal Khashoggi was mistakenly killed. Mistakenly, Secretary of State Pompeo landed in Saudi Arabia earlier today for talks with the Saudi king. And Stormy Daniels' defamation suit against President Trump was tossed by a federal judge on Monday. Her lawyer avowed to appeal. Glenn Simpson, the co-founder of the firm behind the infamous anti-Trump dossier, will invoke the Fifth Amendment not to testify when he appears on Capitol Hill. His lawyers say two other key figures linked to the dossier also have been called to testify this week. And the fifth seems to be uh, the consistent thought about how they'll respond. Senator Warren uh, might have believed that releasing DNA test results would that apparently prove her Native American heritage, although only slightly, would show up uh, President Trump and other Republican critics and put the controversy to rest. However, it has only breathed new life into the story and angered fellow Democrats who fear a blue wave may not happen in next month's midterm elections. President Obama's former campaign manager, Jim Massima, on Monday sharply criticized Warren saying she was throwing the Democratic Party off message just weeks before November's critical midterm elections. Argue the substance all you want, but why 22 days before a crucial election where we must win House and Senate to save America? Why did Senator Warren have to do her announcement now? Messina tweeted, why can't Dems ever stay focused? Meanwhile, the Cherokee Nation dismissed Warren's DNA test, saying it's useless to determine tribal citizenship. Warren, considered a likely 2020 presidential contender, is an overwhelming favorite to win re-election in Massachusetts in November. And the family of missing activist Jamal Khashoggi uh, wants an independent international commission to investigate his disappearance and alleged killing. The strong moral and legal responsibility which our father instilled in us obliges us to call for the establishment of an independent and impartial international commission to inquire into the circumstances of his death. The family said in a statement yesterday, we are grateful to all those who have respected our privacy during this difficult time. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Pompeo landed in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, earlier today for talks with the Saudi King Salman uh, about Khashoggi's disappearance. The 59-year-old went missing on the 2nd of October after he entered the Saudi consulate to obtain documents related to his upcoming marriage to a Turkish woman. Surveillance footage captured him entering through the consulate's main entrance, but he was never seen leaving. Turkish authorities say they have evidence proving that Khashoggi was killed by Saudi agents. Riyadh officials have claimed the journalist was alive when he left the building and they don't know what happened to him. Several media outlets reported yesterday that the government in Saudi Arabia is considering whether to announce that rogue intelligence operatives killed Khashoggi by accident. 
And a federal court, a federal judge, rather, on the, in Los Angeles on Monday threw an, uh, the Stormy Daniels defamation lawsuit against the president out on free speech grounds. The court agrees with Mr. Trump's argument because uh, the tweet in question constitutes rhetorical hyperbole normally associated with politics and public discourse in the U.S., That's a quote from U.S. District Judge James O'Hara in Los Angeles. And in a ruling on Monday, the First Amendment protects this type of rhetorical statement was his uh, assessment. Well, Daniels, whose real name is Stephanie Clifford, sued the president in April over a tweet in which he denied her claims of being threatened by a man in a Las Vegas Vegas parking lot in 2011. The president uh, camp labeled the Monday ruling as a major win. Daniels' attorney vowed via Twitter to appeal, saying that uh, her other claim against the president and Cohen proceed unaffected. Trump's contrary claims are uh, claims are as deceptive as his claims about the inauguration attendance. We will appeal the dismissal of the defamation uh, cause of action and are confident in its reversal, Avenatti tweeted. Well, Glenn Simpson, the co-founder of the Fusion GPS research group that commissioned the infamous anti-Trump dossier, invoked the Fifth Amendment right not to testify when he appeared before the House Judiciary Committee. His lawyer uh, confirmed the dossier authored by former British spy Christopher Steele and commissioned by Fusion GPS was paid for by the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. It included salacious and unverified allegations about the president's visit to Russia. Simpson's refusal to testify will come as two other key figures connected to the dossier are expected to testify on Capitol Hill sometime this week. A deposition is scheduled for Thursday with James Baker, the FBI's former top lawyer. Baker, who had a close working relationship with former FBI Director James Comey left the bureau earlier this year. House Republicans have also scheduled a deposition for Friday with Nellie Orr, who helped research the dossier for Fusion GPS. Orr is married to Bruce Orr, a Justice Department official who has also testified about his contact with Simpson during the campaign. Kind of hard to keep all the dots connected, but it's a story worth following. And Pastor Andrew Brunson, freed last week after two years of captivity in Turkey, will sit down with uh, Fox News' Sean Hannity for an exclusive interview tonight on Hannity. Brunson had been uh, detained in Turkey since October of 2016 due to his alleged ties to an outlawed group. He was ordered freed by a judge on Friday, sentenced to time served. The Turkish judge's ruling ended a tense diplomatic standoff between the U.S. and Turkey that began after Brunson's detention. Turkey targeted the 50-year-old pastor as part of a massive government crackdown following a failed coup months earlier. Pastor Brunson is expected to discuss his uh, imprisonment and uh, weekend meeting with President Trump, among other topics, on Hannity. Uh, That's uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time, presumably 6 p.m. our time, if you want to watch that interview. And on this day in 1997, in the first known case in the United States, a Georgia woman gave birth after being implanted with previously frozen eggs. And on this day in 1987, a a 58-and-a-half-hour drama in Midland, Texas, ends happily as rescuers free Jessica McClure, an 18-month-old girl trapped in a narrow, abandoned well. I remember it well. And on this day in 1968, American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos sparked controversy at the Mexico City Olympics by giving black power salutes during a victory ceremony after winning the gold and bronze medals in the 200-meter race. And on this day in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis begins as President John F. Kennedy is informed that reconnaissance photographs had revealed the presence of missile base in Cuba. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Jason Williams with Oregon Taxpayers United. We'll take a look at the upcoming election. We'll get our ballots in the mail any minute now. You probably have your um, voter uh, pamphlet 
uh, by now as well. So we'll cover some of those issues. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Jason Williams, the director of Oregon Taxpayers United. So stay with us. We'll talk about the upcoming election. Well, Saudi Arabia's government has some explaining to do to the United States about a missing Washington Post columnist, foreign policy experts say. But the Trump administration shouldn't make a rush to judgment. Jamal Khashoggi, 59, a Saudi journalist and columnist for the Washington Post, was last seen on the 2nd of October going into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Well, those urging action by the president point to the possible role of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. If something bad has happened to Khashoggi, it was it was either a very bad decision um, by bin Salman or someone thought that they were acting on behalf of the crown prince rather and behalf and perhaps went too far. Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University, uh, uh, suggests the government of Turkey claims to have audio of Khashoggi being killed. However, the government of Saudi Arabia has denied harming the journalist. They need to come forward, provide evidence that Khashoggi did not uh, enter the consulate or he left the consulate, one or the other. Um, Hyman went on to say that I presume there is a video to demonstrate who enters and exits the consulate. Well, the Trump administration began an investigation at the urging of 20 senators who signed on to a bipartisan letter to the president saying we're going to find out uh, what happened with respect to the terrible situation in Turkey having to do with Saudi Arabia and the reporter. The president told reporters on Friday as he prepared to uh, make a trip to Ohio. And nobody knows quite yet. Nobody's been able to put it all together. People are starting to form ideas. And as they're formed, uh, we'll let you know. But it's certainly a terrible thing. Again, quoting the president. Uh, As late as Friday afternoon, the president said he hadn't yet spoken to the Saudi crown prince. He has since done that, but would call him at some point. The senator's letter to Trump was initiated by the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senators Bob Corker, Republican out of Tennessee, and Robert Menendez, a Democrat out of of New Jersey. Joining them were Senators uh, Lindsey Graham, chairman of the Appropriations Committee, uh, uh, Subcommittee on State Foreign Operations and Related Programs, and Senator Patrick Leahy, uh, the uh, panel's ranking member. Well, learning from Russian President Vladimir Putin's playbook for domestic dissidents such as Boris Nemtsov, uh, Saudi Arabia's King Salman al Saud apparently suggested to President Trump on Monday that an unauthorized team of Saudi operatives may have been responsible for the killing of J- uh, Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul, Turkey earlier this month. We can say that because Trump told reporters on Monday that rogue killers seem to be the most likely culprits, according to the uh, king. Well, such an insinuation is utterly absurd for three reasons. Tom Rogan points out that, first of all, there's the not-so-small issue of sending a large team of Saudi Arabia uh, from Saudi Arabia to Istanbul and then into Saudi, uh, the consulate. Considering that group, such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda, have a pathological hatred for the Saudi royal family, whom they describe as betrayers of the faith, and that Iran's various uh, external activity units enjoy targeting Saudi diplomats abroad, access control at Saudi diplomatic facilities is tightly maintained. Correspondingly, any larger team that wanted to access to and freedom of movement inside the consulate would have to have been authorized by a high-ranking Saudi official, probably the minister at one of the Saudi powerhouse ministries, the foreign ministry, the interior ministry, or the GID in uh, intelligence ministry. Secondly, the objective evidence doesn't fit this rogue killer assertion. After all, the U.S., European, and Turkish intelligence services are now highly confident that the Saudi government both authorized 
authorized and enacted the operation under bin Salman's authority. It's also likely that the Turkish MIT intelligence service bugged the Saudi consulate with with the audio listening devices. Thus, while President Trump has good reason to limit the diplomatic fallout here, his suggestion of believing any of this business about a rogue operation is at odds with the evidence. Third, there's the obvious issue that if the Saudis uh, truly believe that rogue operatives had carried out the operation, they would have dragged those operatives into public view and lambasted them as criminals. While Mohammed bin Salman is far from in, uh, interested in his own domestic position than the world's fury, his governing philosophy is one of absolute personal authority. If this had indeed been a rogue operation, bin Salman or King Salman would have instantly nuked those responsible. That has not happened. And then I thought it rather interesting. Uh, there was a piece that appeared in what's my source here, holding it in my hands, but I don't see uh, the Federalists. They point out uh, saying this um, is it is possible that the circumstances around Khashoggi's disappearance will soon come to light. However, it is equally likely that the passage of time will only further obscure events to cast some light on the issue. I thought it was uh, worthwhile asking uh, what seemed to be critical questions, and this was um, uh, what they suggested. Number one, is there evidence that Khashoggi was murdered? Turkish source sources say there is. The U.S. press has reported that unnamed Turkish officials have told them, or unnamed secondhand Turkish sources uh, has uh, told them, uh, they have evidence, audio and video, uh, that a team of Saudi officials detained, tortured, and killed Khashoggi. However, no reporters, neither Western nor Turkish, have seen that evidence. If it exists, the Turks... Um, have uh, not made it public. In one of the few leaks from the U.S. government, an intelligence official told CNN there is no hard evidence as to whether Khashoggi is dead or alive. So that's one big question. Number two, why has Turkey asked Saudi Arabia to join its uh, Khashoggi, Khashoggi investigative team? Number three, are internal Turkish issues a factor in the Khashoggi affair? Because the Turkish figures and officials leaking to the press are anonymous, it's not clear if or to what extent they represent President uh, Erdogan. Could the sources be hostile to him? Two years ago, his opponents attempted to overthrow him, leaving hundreds of Turks dead. Of course, uh, Pastor, we've been talking about, was uh, swept up in all of that. Erdogan responded by rounding up followers of the former ally and blamed, uh, blaming them for the uh, coup. So there's a question about who these anonymous sources are and what their uh, motives might be in this case. Um, presumably, Erdogan has mostly rid his police force of the uh, Gulenists, um, uh, that's the cleric that's in Pennsylvania, uh, that, but is Turkish, who once dominated it. However, some sources identifying as police or police are challenging pieces of evidence that the Ankara government is using to illustrate Saudi guilt. The discipline shown in the message campaign accused Riyadh through leaks and revealed nothing in public suggests Erdogan is managing the Khashoggi file directly. However, his overall management of the crisis may make him vulnerable again to domestic rivals. Number four, what does the Khashoggi affair have to do with the Gulf Corporation Council Cold War? And they point out that since um, the spring of 2017, the Gulf Corporation Council has been split with senior partner Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates pitted against another U.S. ally, Qatar, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, accused uh, Doha of supporting terrorism and getting too close to Iran and imposing an embargo on their junior partner. partner rather. Now, Turkey sided with Qatar, where it uh, has a military base. Erdogan has sought to heal relations with Riyadh, but still has uh, problems with the uh, United Arab Emirates, as well as Abu Dhabi's sprawling client, Egypt. So could all of this, this affair, be another battleground for this um, this conflict? Is the release of Pastor Brunson related to 
um, this affair. Now, Turkish press sources say no. The president said there were no deals to get back um, the pastor. However, the timing of the pastor's release seems to say otherwise. There were rumors in July of a deal to free Brunson. The United States helped win the release of a Turkish terror suspect held in Israel. But instead of uh, releasing Brunson and Kara put him under house arrest. So they shifted but didn't release him. There's more on that, but I'll move on. Did the United States intelligence know the Saudis were planning an operation targeting Khashoggi? According to press reports, U.S. intercepts captured uh, Saudi communications about an operation to detain him. A CNN story indicated that the United States likely found the information in reviewing its intercepts after he went missing. Was the United States intelligence asleep at the wheel while an ally was planning an operation conducted on the soil of a NATO member that was likely to have regional and even international consequences? And how did a man with extensive ties to intelligence services as well as extremist groups get a green card? Uh, Khashoggi uh, writes a column for the Washington Post, worked at a number of Saudi media organizations, print and broadcast. Broadly speaking, he's a journalist, as the United States press is describing him, with a caveat that most Arab journalists primarily serve the political masters who pay and protect them and often represent the interests of intelligence services. Khashoggi was an advisor to former Saudi intelligence chief uh, Turkey al-Faisal. Uh, when he was ambassador to London, then Washington, Khashoggi uh, reportedly joined the Muslim Brotherhood in the 70s, continues to advocate for political Islam. He called the late Saudi dissident Osama bin Laden a friend and mourned his death. It appears that Khashoggi um, may have been uh, something like Riyadh's back channel to al-Qaeda, at least prior to 9-11. And there's more there as well to consider. But how much of U.S. press coverage and expert opinion is shaped by pro-Iran the echo chamber. And I thought this was an interesting consideration uh, to market the joint comprehensive plan of action, commonly referred to as the Iran nuclear deal. The Obama administration built an echo chamber out of government officials, policy experts and a supine uh, uh, press corps. But Obama's uh, signature uh, foreign policy initiative was not only or even primarily an arms control deal. Rather, it was proposed to realign U.S. interests with the Middle East, with Iran as the uh, favored partner and traditional American allies, especially Israel and Saudi Arabia, downgraded. Obama-era officials uh, rightly saw the Trump administration as a threat to undo Obama's policies. Uh, Trump not only got out of the Iran deal, but also underscored the centrality of America's traditional alliances. He made his first uh, foreign visit to Saudi Arabia and moved the U.S. embassy to Israel um, soon after the Khashoggi um, uh, fell out uh, of public view. So there's that angle as well. And why are some D.C. public relations firms now worried about representing the Saudis? Why are uh, policy analysts and journalists advising Trump to go hard on Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, and uh, Of course, there's a a potential for significant fallout in all of that. So some interesting questions uh, to consider in all of this. And then writing for the National Review, J.J. McCullough had an interesting piece in which he writes the headline being the grim truth about Saudi Arabia points out that a mature society would be able to handle a moderate dissident like Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudi kingdom apparently could not. And the consequences seem clear. The sad reality is that Saudi Arabia will remain a U.S. ally regardless of how deep and disturbing Riyadh's involvement in the murder of a journalist is ultimately revealed to be. As Matthew uh, Continetti recently emphasized, there are certain geopolitical realities, in particular the Cold War with Iran, that make the Saudi-American alliance a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy, no matter how appalling the Saudi human rights record gets. What the alleged murder of uh, Khashoggi Khashoggi um, does do, however, is rapidly eliminate any possibility that the Saudi alliance could be seen as something defensible 
and positive on its own terms rather than a necessary evil. It's certainly a, a column worth reading if you have the opportunity. Again, J.J. McCullough writing the grim truth about Saudi Arabia. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Jason Williams with Oregon Taxpayers United. We'll talk about this upcoming election. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. About 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Well, we're just weeks away from the midterm elections. And while there's been a lot of uh, discussion about what's likely to happen in Washington, taking a look a bit closer to home uh, is also important. You probably have received or will soon receive your voters pamphlet uh, regarding the Oregon general election, which um, uh, takes place on the 6th of November. Here to talk with us about some of the uh, issues and personalities, Jason Williams with Oregon Taxpayers United. Also, the Oregon Watchdog and Oregon Religion Report. If you haven't checked those out, let me encourage you to do that. Jason Williams, welcome back. It's always a pleasure. It's great to be here. And speaking of voter pamphlet statements, I am in there nine different times. Nine times? What, you didn't have much to do this uh, this season? <laughs> <laughs> Democracy keeps me busy. <laughs> well, thank you very much for staying busy. I appreciate it very much. Well, let's just talk about this election in Oregon. What do you see generally at stake when we're talking about the uh, the governor's chair, as well as the legislature. I would say, man, this is one of those pivotal years. Uh, it could really change the face of Oregon. I mean, first of all, the governor governor doesn't just uh, that, the governor changes the whole legislature, House and Senate. The governor also changes the courts because they he gets to pick who gets to be the judges in many cases. Uh, and then you have some ballot measures on the ballot that are mm-hmm. that are just huge. Um, I've been working on the measure. 104, which is, this would change the face of taxation for the next 50 years. It, it simply says all taxes need to get a 60% approval to be passed by the legislature. It's been that way for 20 years, but the politicians found a way around it, so mm-hmm. we have to uh, close the loophole. And But, I mean, that would change the amount of taxes you would get uh, for the next 50 years because the number one best um, tool against high taxes has been the 60% vote rule. Um, it's been on the books for 20 years, but now they found a way to get around it, so now we may see in the next 20 years a resurgence of a flood of tax increases. Let's start at the top of the um, of the ticket, if you will, for... Uh, the state of Oregon. You've got Governor Brown. She wants to hold on to receipt. Newt Bueller, who's a Republican, would like to take it from her. He is a Republican. He's not as conservative as some of us would like him to be. He's not pro-life, for example. Uh, but what what difference would it make to have him in the governor's seat as opposed to Kate Brown? It would be phenomenal. I mean, uh, Kate Brown, I, I can't think, think of anything that she's ever vetoed that would be uh, something we would like. And the, being a governor... Uh, I mean, it just sets the whole agenda for the legislature because both of the House and the Senate, I mean, he could veto anything if if Bueller was there. And also he gets to choose judges. Those judges will make, I mean, right now we've been having, it's just been one party rule and it's been very liberal people at the top. And so we get nothing but liberal judges. Uh, just to have normal judges be with a new governor would affect everything uh, in terms of the whole legal atmosphere here in Oregon and, and what's constitutional and, and what's not. I mean, we're seeing crazy decisions coming down from the courts, um, and uh, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's not right. And we're seeing the legislature do crazy things uh, as well. And so we really need to have uh, – that's why, the, that's why this, the governor is so pivotal because um, it will really change the whole character and nature of Oregon politics. It, it's really come down to that. Well, I appreciate you emphasizing that point because I think for a lot of people when they look at the two personalities, you may not like everything about one or the other. 
Um, but what you have to take into uh, account is how politics are played out in Wash in uh, Salem. Um, the governor has the, is in a position to make decisions that will reflect in so many different areas. Uh, so this is a, a critical race, and it's interesting to see how many Democrats are saying that they've been disappointed with uh, Governor Brown as well and are considering Newt Bueller uh, as their choice. Yes, and uh, a lot of the undercurrents with the frustrated Democrats are like, man, everyone sees that there's a $24 billion hole in our pension system and it's, it's sinking the whole state. And then this lawlessness that's happening in Portland where people are seeing it, we're not seeing law and order. But I really want, I know some people don't get, excited uh, when the candidates aren't talking about their issues. But let me just put this in perspective. In 2010 was a wave election the country had. This was the Tea Party year, and Oregonians, conservative Oregonians were mad. They showed up, and they just totally caused an earthquake in Oregon. We saw handfuls of liberal, bidding politicians be kicked out of office. It created an earthquake, and nothing but good stuff happened in 2010. Then in 2014, there was another wave election in the country, but Oregon batted out. Conservatives were having record record turnout all across the country, but in Oregon, the conservatives stayed home, and we had we reelected our scandal governor, and he got kicked out within a few months after uh, had to resign. But 2014 was one of those years where conservatives, they just stayed home. There was not very much exciting things at the ballot. And so I say that because if conservatives and family-friendly people show up to the ballot, they can create earthquake. We've already seen it. But the tendency in Oregon is to say, man, things are so bad, I just want to sit home. Uh, you can't sit this one out. And if you... When you are you have got friends, you've got to make sure that they vote. We really can change the state. The numbers are there, and I've just showed it to you. But the problem is, is that too many conservatives just stay at home, and they say, ah, Oregon's crazy, it's lost, blah, 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 blah. And, they, and then uh, the liberals win, and it's, and it's horrible. Well, you don't even have to stay home. They, they, they put the ballot in your mailbox. All you have yeah. to do is take the moment to fill it out and put it back in the mail. So we really are without excuse if we believe in the concept of self-governance. Um, which I would hope we all do. Well, let's talk about some of these ballot measures. You uh, touched on ballot measure um, 104. Uh, it it, it uh, requires three-fifths of the legislative majority to approve bills raising taxes. That means it sets the bar a bit higher before arbitrary tax increases can be uh, set and uh, emergencies can be declared whether or not they actually exist in order to uh, to increase what Oregonians end up paying. Tell us a little bit about the campaign and, and uh, how this is going. Yeah, um, we've been doing this because uh, it's a, the simple way of, of explaining this, 60% vote for all taxes. That's what we want. Um, when you do that, 60% vote, the politicians find it really hard to get a tax increase because then they have to build a consensus with people. Uh, they have to work across both aisles. You've got to be bipartisan. And, hey, if a tax can meet that, then that's a better tax than what we're used to seeing. So, um that's why the 60% vote for all tax increases needs to be done. But as I said, the politicians found a way around it. Um, they figured if they could change who qualifies for a tax, they could, they could take away your home interest deduction and say, well, it only applies to people uh, you know, who live uh, in the city of Milton Freewater. Bing, you just disqualified 50,000 Oregonians for the home mortgage interest deduction. Their taxes go up, and they say, well, we didn't raise your taxes. We just took away your tax break. It's that kind of gimmicks that are so, and another, here's another gimmick. They tried to pass a carbon tax. They basically said, if you have carbon emissions, you have to pay money into this, this slush fund. $600 million that they were going to 
take from businesses and force them to pay into a, this uh, political slush fund. They said it wasn't a tax because we're not taxing them. We're just forcing them to pay money into this uh, green energy slush fund. Well, <laughs> if you have to force people to pay money, it's a tax. But they just changed the name of a tax. So that's why the Measure 104 is so important. We got to say 60% vote for all taxes. Do that, and you're going to see taxes begin to be lower and not see the flood of taxes that we're going to see. Let's talk about Measure 103 uh, that would uh, keep groceries tax-free. Now, opponents suggest, well, this is this isn't being proposed in any a significant way to begin with, so why would you amend the Constitution? Do you see this as a necessary measure to fend off uh, efforts that have at least suggested oh, yes. such a thing uh, in the past? Oh, yes. The sales tax Oregonians have said no nine times, but they really want to tax our, our groceries. They want to tax us with a sales tax. We saw it. Ontario became the first city in Oregon to pass a sales tax. We jumped in there and killed it this year. And then Hood River tried to do a little sales tax. And then now we're seeing uh, we, we helped kill that. And, and Jacksonville actually has a food and beverage tax on the ballot, Jackson County. Um, and so you, the politicians need more money. And so they're going to go after your food and they're going to go after what you drink. And so it's time to say, nope, let's leave food and drink off the table um, because that is a big pot of money because people, <laughs> people use food and drink to survive and keep alive and politicians, what better way to tax something that if they can't say no, because I mean, that we'll die if we don't get our groceries. So they know it's a great thing to tax because we can't say no. Ah, but perhaps we can. Let's look at Measure 105 that repeals um, the law that limits the use of state and local law enforcement resources to enforce federal immigration laws. This has been a back and forth now for, uh, for a while. Your thoughts on 105? Yes, this is a sanctuary uh, yes. city uh, law where where we are seeing some local police, when they uh, arrest someone, that they do not report that person to uh, the immigration, um, which would be helpful because if that person doesn't belong here in this country, immigration needs to know. And so now there there are laws that block police from informing immigration. And we, we saw a case, the worst case was, I think, a Sergio Martinez guy, he had been uh, in and out of the, the arrest like nearly seven times, and he got out out of jail early, and within one week, he attacked two women. One in a parking lot, another one, he just opened up her window and attacked her in her home. I mean, this guy is a monster. He doesn't, he's not an American citizen. He doesn't belong here. We should turn him over. So that's that uh, issue right then and there. Uh, Sanctuary City's big, a hot issue, and it's playing out across the country as well. Absolutely, as well as here in Oregon. Now, I've had guests in to talk about Measure 106 that would end state uh, taxpayer dollars going to abortions in the state of Oregon. Uh, a lot of money uh, raid against this effort, but I'm hoping that Oregonians of all stripes will come out in favor of the notion that if you make a choice, you, you're free to make that choice. But for taxpayers who oppose the choice, we don't have to pay for that. Uh, are you optimistic about this election cycle? Um, yes, yes. Uh, it, it was interesting. The the uh, enthusiasm gap um, has has got cut in half there after the, the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, that really got a lot of people ex excited and started paying attention. But there, there's also some other measures in Portland has some really wild measures. You've got 
they got a campaign finance reform, which if, if your grandmother gave you $505 to run for mayor, she would be breaking the law. They're trying to, they're trying to make it, you know, illegal for people to donate uh, to campaigns of certain size. I'll tell you what, let's talk about those yeah, when we come back sure. from the break. Uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Jason Williams, Oregon Taxpayers United. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 53 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Jason Williams, Oregon Taxpayers United. You might want to check out OregonWatchdog.com or the Oregon Religion Report. Great resources for local information. We're talking about the midterm election. Let's talk about what's going on in Portland. You were touching on a couple of things. One, uh, an effort to limit uh, campaign contributions. Yes. uh, So Portland has this um, measure. It's um, measure 200, 26-200, trying to limit campaign donations. Uh, So if, as I said, if your grandmother gave you $505, you break that $500 limit, you would be breaking the law. It also has these other weird stuff in there, too. So if you send out uh, uh, advertisement on behalf of a candidate, you have to list in the advertisement who your top three donors are. It's just dumb. So not only are political ads dumb enough, but then you're going to have to stuff them in by, you know, of who paid for this. So you have that. Then also Portland has a uh, sales tax, a uh, kind of a grocery seat sales tax that they want to hit on uh, large companies in Portland. That that would be a disaster. And then the Metro has this, uh, this is Washington County, Clackamas County, um, Multnomah County, and I believe parts of Yamhill County have a $650 million affordable housing bond. So we're going to raise property taxes by some, you know, $650 million. It'd be a billion dollars over the lifetime of the bond to pay for affordable housing. And they've looked at some of this uh, on some of the numbers that they want to do for affordable housing. First of all, if you're raising a billion dollars in taxes on people's homes for affordable housing, you're not reducing the cost of home. You're making it more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, too, is that the they're going to be building um, apartment units for affordable housing, and these units are going to cost anywhere from like $250,000. So um, the cost of actually of my house is what an apartment unit is going to be. So they could actually build a house and just give it to the person instead of having these uh, apartment units. This is how over-the-top expensive this is. Um, so those are some things that are happening in the, in the metro area. And I have to say, midterm election, not presidential year, so we see a huge drop in voter uh, participation and voter turnout. But if you actually do show up to vote this year, you're actually showing up on behalf of people who aren't voting. So your vote actually has bigger weight and is more valuable percentage-wise than in a presidential election. Yeah, that's a really good good point. Let's talk about the the uh, voters' pamphlet. I think a lot of people find it confusing. You've mentioned that you've contributed quite a bit to this thing, uh, but you have all kinds of opinions in it. First, there's a page that explains the measure, uh, the agreed-upon explanation, or at least the settled-upon explanation, and then you have uh, pros and cons in, in many of the cases that can be a bit overwhelming. As I'm holding the voters' pamphlet in my hand, it's, what, 140, 150 pages uh, long. How useful do you think this is, and how do you suggest people use it to help inform them about the measure and have a better understanding or a clear understanding about what's actually being proposed? 
Um, I think uh, voter pamphlets are good. They're actually polling shows that, um, that that's one of the number one ways that people make their decision. So a lot of effort is put on there. You can see who's supporting these ballot measures, see the arguments. You can still see where the candidates stand, who's endorsing them. Uh, it's But I also recommend, you know, like Oregon Family Council. I mean, they produce yes. a, a voter's guide that shows where the candidates stand and some candidate uh, or some ballot measure recommendations. We at the Taxpayer Association of Oregon, um, we produce a voter's guide. We're taking sides on 95 candidates. I think we do more endorsements. Anyone else in Oregon? We are we are more uh, friendly and daring than just about anyone else that I know. So there's groups out there that do these endorsements uh, and let you know about the ballot measures. Uh, get on board. I mean, look, I'm one of them. You don't have to choose me. You could choose Family Council. You could choose, um, you know, I know Right to Life would be a lot of friendly people. Uh, very connected with your audience. There's all kinds of groups that do voters' guides. They help me uh, cut through the fluff because, you know, sometimes people put stuff on the voter pamphlet. It may not be real, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the, the point is if we're going to be informed voters, it's going to take some time to familiarize ourselves with the issue we can't just, uh, you know, close our eyes and point. We, we have to do a little bit of studying to understand what it is we're being asked to consider and then to make a, a thoughtful decision about how we cast our vote. Yeah, and I, I can't emphasize voter turnout enough. In, in, the, in May... In the May primary, there was one House of Representative race in Oregon decided by two votes, and another House of Representative race was decided by, I think it was less than 15 votes. So people say, I don't know if I'm going to take the time to open up my ballot by mail and lick the stamp. I just can't do it. Or you get frustrated, can't you just do it? If it's going to be decided, these races are going to be decided by two and 15 votes. Wow. You got to show up. You got to participate. This is you can you can create. I hope people create an earthquake here in Oregon, a political earthquake after the election. Well, absolutely. I hope I hope so as well. Jason, it's always a a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Again, uh, Jason Williams with the uh, Taxpayer Association of Oregon. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, uh, we'll tell you a little bit about what um, the medical professionals, uh, doctors are doing in the Family Physicians Association, as well as a Canadian hospital. We're also going to hear from Tim Dunn, author of Yellow Balloons, Power for Living Life Above the Circumstances. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Tim Dunn. He's the author of Yellow Balloons, Power for Living Life Above the Circumstances. And that's always a challenge. We'll talk with Tim Dunn about that uh, later this hour. Well, children, we learn from Scripture, are a gift from the Lord. They come under varying circumstances, and sometimes the circumstances more challenging than uh, parents or a parent has uh, planned for. But nonetheless, they are a gift. I, I noted that the American Academy uh, of Family Physicians has announced that it no longer opposes physician-assisted suicide, instead taking a neutral perspective on the matter, and that in Canada, Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children recently unveiled a plan for how to terminate the lives of termini- terminally ill children with or without their parents' consent. Now, we uh, can sigh a bit of relief, suggesting uh, at least we'd like to think this could never happen here, Uh, But nonetheless, this is in Toronto, Canada. We're not talking about the Netherlands. 
Well, this next step for physician-assisted suicide in Canada is shocking, but it's not surprising given international trends. European countries that have legalized physician-assisted suicide frequently expand the practice from the elderly to the terminally ill to other populations. Now, these countries, uh, they quite often practice non-voluntary euthanasia as well. That means you don't consent to it. They decide, well, it's in at least our best interest, interest, if not yours. That Canada is considering allowing children to take their own lives is in keeping with this sequence and with this trend. Well, the article detailing the Toronto Hospital's plan was published three months before the Council of Canadian Ac- uh, Academies rather is due to report to Parliament on expanding physician-assisted suicide to additional cases, namely... Requests by mature minors, advanced requests, and requests where mental illness is the sole underlying medical condition. So you don't have to be physically ill. You don't have to be terminal. Uh, The fact that you have a mental illness would be, uh, if they approve this, sufficient ground for uh, requesting physician-assisted suicide, whether or not you as the individual were to do so or others on your behalf. Well, according to this plan, so-called minors under 18 who desire confidentiality may conceal their wishes from their parents and their families would not be informed of their decision until after the patient was dead. So the process would begin and end without parents being informed. The Catholic Register reports that the proposed policy for sick kids argues that there is no meaningful ethical distinction between a patient choosing to refuse burdensome treatment and accepting an inevitable death versus patients who choose to die by chemical injection before the disease brings on death. Legally, Ontario does not require parents to be involved in a capable minor's decision to refuse further treatment. Therefore, there is no legal reason to require parent involvement in an assisted death, according to the sick kids policy. Well, it's not difficult to imagine how such a protocol could wreak havoc on society. When a culture differentiates between lives worth living and lives worth ending, the consequences to vulnerable populations, the young, the old, the sick, the disabled, are disastrous. Well, suddenly, those who most require our compassion and protection, particularly the protection of parents, become the most likely to be pressured to prematurely end their lives. Now, that's why disability groups are at the forefront fighting against physician-assisted suicide, because they're the first casualties of this dangerous practice. Now, no one should receive suicide assistance instead of suicide prevention, especially not children. The United States ought to pay heed to these disturbing developments in Canada and elsewhere. This year, Hawaii became the sixth state in the United States to legalize physician-assisted suicide. Well, now that Hawaii has accepted the first principle of physician-assisted suicide, that death is the supposedly compassionate solution to suffering, there is a clear path extending that solution to more and more people. Now, soon that principle will be uh, extended to those who previously received counseling against suicide, such as children, and soon it will be extended to those who do not choose to die, but that society or their families think should die. Well, as this uh, new plan at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children demonstrates, there is no natural logical limit to what qualifies for physician-assisted suicide. Canada should wholeheartedly and emphatically reject this dangerous plan, and the United States, again, should take heed and reject physician-assisted suicide within our borders. It is expanding in the United States. It has not yet extended to children, but again, that seems to be the trend. Meanwhile, the American Academy of Family Physicians announced uh, last week that it no longer opposes physician-assisted suicide, instead taking a neutral perspective on the matter. 
Now, is it possible to take a neutral, uh, a neutral perspective on the matter of physician-assisted suicide? Well, the American Academy of Family Physicians, or AAFP's adoption of engaged neutrality regarding physician-assisted suicide, signals a marked splinter from the American Medical Association. Now, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, President Michael Munger, announced the change. The committee also recommended the procedure be referred to as medical aid in dying because a drug is administered, even though it results in and its intention is to end the life of the patient. It's still referred to as medical aid in dying, much like abortion is considered a medical procedure because, well, medical professionals oversee it, even though the purpose of and the end game is the death of a viable human child in most cases. Now, as opposed to physician-assisted suicide, what they're proposing is that it be referred to medical aid in dying. Through our ongoing and continuous relationship with our patients, family physicians as well are well positioned to counsel patients on end-of-life care, and we are engaged in creating change in the best interest of our patients, Munger said in a statement, according to PR Newswire. California, New Mexico, New York, Washington Academy of Family Physicians uh, and Washington Academy of Family Physicians introduced the measure Uh, that AAFP delegates approved on Tuesday. Any resolution departing from the American Medical Association's Code of Ethics requires a two-thirds vote by the Congress of Delegates. In other words, this isn't just a decision made by leadership. Physician-assisted suicide, he went on to say, is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer would be difficult or impossible to control and would, would pose serious societal risks according to the Code of Ethics. Instead of engaging in assisted suicide, physicians must aggressively respond to the need of patients at the end of life. That's what their code of ethics says. Rather than help patients with suicide, physicians should support terminally ill patients, respect their autonomy, communicate and provide pain control and comfort care if the patient so chooses, according to the American Medical Association, from which uh, these family physicians has departed. Well, AAFP's resolution is dangerous and irresponsible, and it puts the most vulnerable at risk of deadly harm through mistakes, abuse, and coercion. That's what the Patients' Rights Action Fund Executive Director Matt uh, Villari says, uh, said rather on Wednesday in a statement. Well, the Patients' Rights Action Fund seeks to protect patients' civil rights and oppose efforts to make suicide a legal medical treatment option. Changing our position to engaged uh, neutrality shows that our members are respectfully, uh, our members rather, can respectfully disagree about medical aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide, but still agree about our role in supporting our patients no matter what care they choose at the end of life. Again, the Washington Academy of Family Physicians member Julia Sokoloff, who introduced the resolution, uh, said uh, in, de- in defense of this move. Well, the Massachusetts Medical Society also voted to repeal its policy regarding assisted suicide and euthanasia in December, moving from its well-established opposition to neutral engagement on the practice. California, Colorado, Vermont, Hawaii, Montana, and unfortunately, Oregon and Washington permit physician-assisted suicide. Assisted suicide in the Netherlands is legal for anyone who suffers from physical or mental illness, has an advanced directive, or has uh, received parental consent if younger than 16. Well, the American Academy of Family Physicians did not respond to uh, questions uh, or uh, requesting more information or comment, but this is the position that they have now taken, moving us closer uh, to the notion of physician-assisted suicide being embraced by medical professionals. Uh, it seems to me it is a sad day for all of us when medical professionals 
uh, in increasing numbers, support the notion of uh, aid in dying, medical aid in dying, physician-assisted suicide, whatever you want to call it, rather than what the uh, oath, the ethical oath that they uh, have embraced, what the American Medical Association has stood by up to this point. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Tim Dunn. He is the author of Yellow Balloons, Power for Living Life Above the Circumstances. That can be something of a challenge these days. We'll find out how to do it in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to update you on. And then to uh, let you know about, first of all, Pastor Brunson, who was recently released just a day or two ago from a Turkish prison and then house arrest after a two years uh, confinement, uh, is going to be interviewed tonight on the Sean Hannity program. You can check your local listings for the time and all the details, but that's on the Fox uh, News channel. And I believe they run that more than once over the course of the evening. Uh, But Pastor Brunson will be uh, interviewed by Sean Hannity tonight. For those of you who have been praying for and following this story, you might want to hear what he has to say and reflecting on his two-year-long ordeal. Also, I wanted to give you an update on Leah Sharibu. She inspires uh, Nigeria's Christians, but she is facing execution by Boko Haram. Uh, She is 15 years old. She's a Christian in Nigeria. She's uh, desperately praying for, and all of uh, Nigeria and believers outside of the country are praying for this 15-year-old, Leah Sharibu, as a one-month deadline to save the only uh, Dopchi schoolgirl left uh, in Boko Haram captivity draws uh, to an end this week. Uh, It's not altogether clear to me why this deadline, this one month and now one week deadline has been imposed, but she has a week to live unless some prescribed conditions are met, it would uh, appear. Well, the terrorist group's ISIS-affiliated faction threatened last month to kill the teenager. She was held back for refusing to renounce her Christian beliefs. The other hostages, 104 of her schoolmates, were released following negotiations with the Nigerian government in March. She was held because of her, uh, of her faith. Her resolute faith in the face of death has inspired evangelists, pastors, everyday Christians all across Africa. Most po- it's the most populous um, nation and certainly believers outside of uh, Nigeria. Boko Haram started in t- 2002 as a nonviolent sect. It was meant to purify Islamic practices. But in recent years, it rose to the second deadliest group in the Global Terrorism Index, It's responsible for tens of thousands of deaths and more than two million people displaced. In February, its ISIS wing abducted 112 female students, you might recall, preparing for final exams at Government Girls Science and Technical College in Dopchi in the northeastern state of Yob. Six of the girls from the all-female boarding school died during captivity while one escaped, leaving Sharibu, the only Dopchi student, still with her abductors. The other nurse and midwife will be executed in a similar manner in one month, including Lee Sharibu, uh, the sect threatened on the 18th of September in a video of the execution of a midwife with the International Committee of the Red Cross. So they actually engaged in an execution in that video. Days before the execution video emerged, Sharibu pleaded for rescue in a 35-second audio clip. The first opportunity her family has had to see her and to hear from her since she was held uh, Uh, was held captive. I am calling on the government and people of goodwill to intervene to get me out of my current situation, she said. I am begging you to treat me with compassion. I am calling on the government, particularly the president, to pity me and get me out of this serious situation. Thank you. 
That's what she is heard saying. Her family has pled with the Nigerian government to save her. Her mother, Rebecca, held a press conference in Jos shortly after the video circulated. The family finally heard from the president this month, who told them by phone that no effort would be spared to ensure her rescue. And we don't know what that means, but that's a direct quote. Uh, Sharibu's father, Nathan, said, uh, speaking to Christianity today, today, rather, that he was losing hope of ever seeing his daughter again. We are very sad. The house is quiet. He said, we are so worried the terrorists could harm her. Well, of course, they have harmed her from the very beginning. But he went on to say, we want the government to please help us. I believe they can rescue her if they want to. They can get her out if they try enough. They should please not allow her to get killed, end quote. Well, advocates for Sharibu's release has spurred by... Um, Similar efforts uh, for 276 girls abducted by Boko Haram from government secondary school in Chaibok in the northeastern state of Borno in April of 2014, publicized worldwide through the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. Chaibok and, jo- and Dopchi, rather, uh, where Sharibu has, uh, was taken, are just four hours apart in northeast Nigeria, which has been battered by deadly terror attacks since 2010. Uh, Yoba, Borno, and uh, neighboring Adamawa state were uh, all placed under a state of emergency in 2013. In both cases, Boko Haram kidnapped hundreds of girls. Following negotiations, 26 of the Chaibok students were freed in October of 2016 and another 82 in May of this of last year in the wake of leading international figures, including former First Lady Michelle Obama, calling for their release. Now, uh, but church leaders and Christian activists have been most vociferous in this campaign for Sharibu's uh, rescue, inspired by the story of a teenager refusing to renounce her faith, even when threatened with death. And that is where uh, she and it stands uh, at this point. So for those of you who have followed her story, who have been praying for her, uh, now is the time to uh, press even further for her release. Uh, It may be that she is martyred for her faith, this 15-year-old girl, and it challenges me to think about Um, opportunities that I have been given to stand firm in my faith, to be outspoken, um, and perhaps I'm I'm less courageous than this 15-year-old under the worst possible circumstances. The other story I wanted to bring you up to date on has to do with a a groundbreaking win for religious liberty. Former Fire Chief Kelvin Cochran has reached a $1.2 million settlement with the city of Atlanta. A good man's legal ordeal is at an end. Yesterday, um, uh, with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom, they announced that former Atlanta Fire Chief Kelvin Cochran has reached a, a settlement ending a case he brought after the city fired him for writing and distributing to a select few city employees a self-published book that articulated an entirely orthodox Christian view of sex and marriage. Now, the facts of the case were egregious from the beginning. Mr. Cochran was a pioneer. He was born in Confederate Memorial Hospital in Shreveport, Louisiana. He grew up to become one of the first black firefighters hired by his hometown fire department. He ultimately became the first black fire chief in Shreveport. He continued to ascend the ranks of firefighters, becoming Atlanta's fire chief. And then in 2009, President Obama appointed him to run the fire uh, administration, a division of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. After he left Atlanta, the fire department struggled. So Atlanta's mayor recruited him back and uh, Chief Cochran turned the department around so thoroughly that it for the first time, received the nation's highest fire protection rating. The cornerstone of his effort to transform the department's morale was to a participatory management structure that solicited input from every rank, every race, every shift, every gender, every sexual preference. He consciously included LGBT employees, granting, in his words, every group a voice. Um, uh, When his case went to court, to uh, this point, uh, uh, Cochran's story was one that would make even a university diversity officer rejoice. He overcame poverty, discrimination to ascend to 
the pinnacle of his profession where he implemented an inclusive management style that improved employee morale. But Cochran is also a Christian, and soon enough that presented a problem that was fatal to his career. In 2013, he sought and received permission from the city's ethics officer to self-publish a Christian book. The book, Who Told You uh, That You Were Naked, in part argued that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman was contrary to God's will. He distributed the book to a select few colleagues, mainly people who had already discussed their Christian faith with him. He also shared it with the mayor and three members of the city council. No fire department employee ever complained uh, to him about his book. One employee did, however, show a few pages of the book that dealt with sexuality to an openly gay Atlanta city council member, and it went on from there. Uh, Atlanta's mayor openly condemned Cochran's religious beliefs. And in January of 2015, the city fired him without providing him with due process required by the city's rules or providing him any meaningful opportunity to contest the claims against him. Well, we learned uh, that the uh, city has now uh, settled with the uh, former fire chief. They reached a $1.2 million settlement with the city of Atlanta. So for those of you who have been following the story and praying Uh, for him. Uh, That has now come to an end. Now, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to talking with Dr. Russell Moore, his latest book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. Hope you can join us. And then on Thursday, our Union Gospel Mission Radiothon, an opportunity to help feed the hungry and end homelessness here in our city. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.